Computing Broadcast, a fascinating round in three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. So this week, we are going to have an extraordinarily interesting topic told in a very unique way, even by fascinating noun standards. And that is, we are going to present an interview with a man who cannot speak. Now that sounds like an enigma. So while you ponder that, let me give you a riddle. What do Sherlock Holmes, Batman, and Tom Watkins have in common? They are, by all estimations, the greatest detectives the world has ever known. Two of them are fictional, one of them is real, and that is Tom Watkins of Animal Search UK, arguably the world's greatest pet detective. That's right, pet detective. He will find your pet if it's missing. Now, I should also say that you can go out and hire Tom to find your pet. You cannot go out and hire Batman. You cannot go out and hire Sherlock Holmes. So what does that tell you? You got one option. It's Tom Watkins. Uh, incredible stuff. He wrote a book chronicling his his trajectory into superstardom called The Real Pet Detective, where he tells the story of his business in individual rescue case stories, where he talks about how he rescued a particular animal and gives you everything you need to know. Um, very exciting stuff, an absolute pleasure uh, and an honor to have him on the show today. But there's a little challenge producer Sarah and I had to overcome, and that is we wanted to do an interview with a man who cannot speak. What does that mean? Well, Tom suffers from a very rare condition, actually one we don't know a lot about, called spasmatic dysphonia. And essentially what this thing does, some people, it, it can be genetic, it can be caused by a severe cold. There's a spectrum of ways one can acquire this affliction. And it renders the voice box completely useless, in a sense. You can take medication and make it, you know, to, to be able to communicate, but essentially renders it useless. I'm sure a lot of my enemies would like this to be forced upon me, um, but it, that's not to happen today. But how do we, how do we get through this? Well, we came up with a borderline ingenious idea, and in kind of Stephen Hawking style, what we're going to do is we're going to interview both Tom and uh, and his daughter Polly, who's very integral to the pet business, uh, the pet search business. So I will ask questions, Tom's going to give an answer, and Polly will will relay it to us. And, and I think this is going to work very well. Um, I, I think it's an absolute pleasure. Again, he doesn't do a lot of in-person interviews, so I'm very excited about this. Now, you, I've mentioned on the show, you know my history with pets. You know my love of them, re- helping other people find them and taking them in. So this is right up my alley. And there's probably only one other person I've ever met who is as crazy about animals as I am, and that is producer Sarah. So this promises to be a great episode. Now, I do want to mention one last thing. I loved the movie Ace Ventura Pet Detective, one of my favorite movies growing up. Now, while I do not believe that Tom Watkins has quite that unorthodox style, the same as Ace, I believe that he does have avant-garde techniques that have pushed him to the front of the pet search pack. 
I'm very excited about this opportunity, and I'm pretty sure that Tom is very excited about this opportunity. He's not in a position to refute me vocally, so I think that that is why he's doing this show. Who doesn't want to be on Fascinating Nouns? We only do 26 episodes a year. Who doesn't want to join that elite class? Well, these two are definitely a part of that elite class. Polly, Tom, thank you so much for being on the show today. That's all right. Thank you for having us. Did you still call me governor? No, I said thank you for having us. Oh, I thought you said thank you, governor. And I was like, oh my God, that's like every stereotype that I've ever heard is like coming true. <laughs> um, hey, Polly, can you do an American accent? Is that, um, are you? I've always like, I always like to hear people do American accents. Can you try one or is that? I don't know. What should I say? I don't know. Say hello. Uh, my name is Polly and I don't want a cracker, so stop asking me. <laughs> Hello, my name is Polly. That's the best I can do. I can't do it. <laughs> that was pretty good. That wasn't good. I, I don't want to do a British accent because it involves me saying "gubna," and we've already we've already established that that is uh, completely stereotypical and borderline insulting to the great to the great country of the UK. So I'm not even going to try. You're in the pet detective business, Tom. Having spasmodic dysphonia, that has got to be um, kind of kind of a blow because you're one of the things in your book that kind of sets you apart is your ability to interview people and kind of get the information out uh, in a way that leads you directly to the animal that you're that you're seeking out. Has it been kind of a difficult transition to to teach people the techniques that only you have mastered? With careful practice, we can make sure that the team that work with Dad can understand and learn the techniques. Yeah, I imagine because I, I imagine with, with a skill like that, it has to. Re I mean, it's all practice, right? I mean, I imagine you know because you you were a cop before, right? Yeah, but in the service, you learn five techniques called five WH, and that's a series of questions: what, when, why, where, and how. Well, because those are very similar to the kind of the journalistic um, approach to things as well. And I bet there's probably overlap between the two. We do press releases, which help with all of our cases, which um, increases publicity. Oh, so that is kind of the overlap then. So, you, you know, there's both the questioning technique where you're talking to people, um, but also the press releases, kind of like if you look at a Venn diagram, that must be kind of the overlap because essentially both are asking the same questions. You want to know who, what, where, when, why, and how. And that, what's, what's crazy to me is so you're asking, so you canvass the neighborhood. Um, I imagine that, you know, given the novelty of what you do, people are probably more apt to, to work with you. Um, but but is it uh, do you come across people who um, are less than less than helpful and and is that typically a red flag for you? Because we are asking permission to go into their gardens to search, it's quite intrusive. So people either cooperate fully or they are intrigued. So they or they refuse. So is that is the refusal is that kind of a red flag and you kind of cock your eyebrow and then scratch your non-existent beard and say all right something's up with this guy? It could mean that they know something or they aren't letting on about but sometimes it's so more than they just don't want to be included. 
Oh, like so, so they either they don't want the publicity or they just don't want to, to be involved and want to keep their nose clean like that? Or they just don't like pets or good Yeah, reasons. they just like pets. Right. <laughs> That's got to be pretty difficult, I imagine. Um, you know, it's funny because in your in your book, uh, the 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 real life pet detective. It's a great book. So it's it's well written and and it, it does a great job of explaining your pet service business kind of from the ground up uh, with each individual story. Uh, you know, each individual case kind of not only explains the case; they're all different and and it explains the the, the trajectory of your business, which is which is fascinating. And, and and pretty extraordinarily impressive. You are the number one pet search uh, company in the UK, arguably the world. Is that still accurate? On a busy day, we can have up to nearly 100 pets reported. Of those, because I know you have a database online which kind of helps people uh, and a network of people who live locally in towns. Uh, how many of those people who call and report a pet missing to go into your database will actually hire you to come out and do like an on-the-ground, boots-on-the-ground kind of search? So it's a pretty small percentage because the cost of the professional search team can be quite high. But most people either use the free database matching system or they use the pet insurance to buy the publicity posters from us. So it's probably around one in every 50 to hire the team. Wow. Oh, so so insurance will cover the cost of you guys? That's incredible. So it's not the search, but the posters and the leaflets that we provide that the insurance will cover. Wow. So did you have to work that out with the insurance company? Like, are you getting a little kick, you getting a little beak wet on this, no pun intended? Um, or are they just, do they just love your service so much and see that the value that it provides for them? Or is the UK uh, just that great when it comes to insurance? So most insurances would cover the, for the advertising and the reward costs. When dad started the business, it just happened that the insurance company started off with this service. So it fitted in quite well. And now we work with customers of every leading insurer in the UK. Wow. So they cover the reward costs too. That's incredible. I mean, it seems like, you know, if, if I'm gathering this from, from your book, it, it seems like in some ways um, you kind of like got, you got lucky in a lot of different ways. You kind of rode this strange wave to superstardom in a way because, you know, this insurance thing I didn't know about. But, you know, even even the, you know, the, the, the first when you called into the, the radio station and then, you know, you, you kind of like named your company on the spot and you kind of like bought the stuff on the spot and it all just kind of grew organically. How, how did this how did this whole idea come about? Like what really um, kind of set you on the path? towards a pet detective career so after a very successful but short career in the police dad knew that he loved helping people and investigating things so when he heard that the appeal on the radio was so successful he thought my goodness there's nobody that does this properly professionally and effectively so on a nationwide basis so he decided to set up the business and originally advertise the business with a few vets his determination and complete confidence that it would work help him achieve what we've got today. <laughs> you know, it's funny because the the rare part of that whole thing is really the confidence that it will work because uh, I think that's got to be the hardest thing to muster up because you're doing something that's kind of avant-garde. 
which you may not be 100% sure people are going to take seriously. I've been trying to avoid talking about Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. I was doing my best, even though you mentioned it in the book several times. Um, but, you know, that movie's kind of played for laughs. Um, but you're trying to do this very seriously. And I imagine that initially, there, there's, you know, if I was looking at this objectively, I would say, well, if I'm looking to get into that business, there's two things. Number one, uh, the ridiculousness of Ace Ventura might be a hindrance. However, uh, number two, people's obsession with their pets is also ridiculous. And so I don't know which one would win if I was really trying to take bets at this point. Uh, but it looks like you won out. Was there ever any fear that people wouldn't take you seriously and that you'd kind of, you know, this, this would be a flash in the pan? Uh, numerous friends and people told dad that it was going to fail when he told them his idea. So every time someone said, Tom, that wouldn't work, people could make their own posters for their missing pet. It made dad more determined. He devised one fundamental difference and on his posters, and this was that they had an 0800 free number. So if an owner used his posters instead of their own, um, it would mean that people could ring anonymously. Their pet had been knocked over or stolen. They wouldn't have to give out their name, so the owner wouldn't have to know. That's a really important distinction because, uh, you know, the, the it's kind of, you know, I'm sure you guys have something like this in the UK, but in the States, people have anonymous tip lines. So in some, in some neighborhoods, it is considered um, to be nice, bad form to... Um, to tell the police about illegal activities. And if you're caught, bad things can happen to you. Um, it's it give rise to the phrase snitches get stitches. So people have an anonymous tip line. So when they see things or if they want to stop the, the, the activity in their neighborhood, they call these anonymous tip lines. And that seems like a, like a very essential really um, way to, to, to be able to publicize and to put this out there so that people would start using your posters. I mean, that's actually a great innovation. You know, it's funny because, you know, I'm, I've, I'm kind of an amateur sleuth uh, when it comes to pets. I've, I'm going to give you a story in a second. But one tragic incident that, that I came across was essentially I found this. I, I was walking my dogs and I found this trail of blood and it led me to a cat. So my dog spooked the cat and he took off. Now, the only person I know, as I mentioned before, who's as crazy about animals as I am, is producer Sarah. So I gave her a call. She came over. We looked for the cat for 45 minutes, eventually finding him. Uh, we put him in a little carrier, ran him up to the vet, and unfortunately, he didn't make it through the car ride. So two days later, someone put up posters in my building asking where their missing cat was. Now, I knew where their missing cat was. I had to call them up and give them the information. Um, of what happened. And ultimately what happened is this person's roommate left the window open on the sixth floor and the cat fell six stories. So I imagine the outburst between her and her roommate was probably not very good. I know I would end up throwing my roommate out the six story window if, if my cat or dog, <laughs> they let them out. Um, but, but I really wish I could have had an anonymous line to call up and say, Hey, I know what happened. I'm really sorry. Here's what I tried to do. Here's where you can find the cat. So I think that, you know, that terrible story is really illustrates how important it is to have anonymity. Um, and also, you know, if, if you're the kind of the one who did whatever, um, you can kind of 
explain that or at least give that information. Um, because going back to my earlier point, there in the book, there's it almost seems like every story, or at least every other story, has some kind of villain in it. Someone who's either knows something or is involved, uh, or at least you play it off like they're involved or know something. Do you find that pretty often, or is that more um, kind of like a story technique uh, to kind of, you know, a red herring, so to speak? Uh, or, or do you find that people are tech- typically involved in, in the commission of the crime, should I say? Firstly, we have an organization in the UK called Crime Stoppers, and that's our equivalent to your snitch line. So the dad copied their approach, but for pets, obviously. And thankfully, most of the cases, there's no crimes that are being committed. So the references in dad's book are condensed rather than reflecting the day-to-day cases. So there's typically not not a bad guy, so to speak. So it's not really like Scooby-Doo in that respect. So most of these are, are more like um, missing cat cases found in, in people's yards. There was one kind of one really interesting case that you had where a cat got out and then ended up going through another person's uh, like cat door, like a little cat flap or dog flap or whatever, but th- that flap only went one way, so the cat got caught inside someone else's house, and then that person happened to have been gone for a couple weeks. How uh, how does that kind of work when you need to get into someone else's apartment or, or flat or to save a cat, but you don't exactly have their permission and the people aren't around? So usually dad could get a neighbour with a spare key who will let him in and generally they don't mind helping if there's a pet that's trapped inside. So in the case of the cat chairman in the book, we didn't really need to go in. We just opened the cat flap and he peered out to them and um, got himself out the cat flap to the handful of tuna that dad had in his hand. Tuna's as as the magic trick, huh? That'll... That'll get a cat every time. There's like a snapping going on in your background. I don't know. Yeah, if you... it's the fire. Sorry. The log fire. The log fire. That's a fire. Yeah, we've got a log fire. Oh, I thought someone was getting whipped. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds sounds violent. You know, it's it's funny because from the book I learned that you are extremely allergic to cats. Yet most of your business seems to be with cats. Um, a, is that extraordinarily uncomfortable? Um, and B, have you weaponized that allergy to be able to more like a cat detecting device? So as the, the, the more you sneeze, the closer you are to the cat. Have you tried any of that? When dad gets near a cat, the allergic reaction causes his eyes to close. So when he bumps into something, he knows he's close. (laughs) 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 No, but seriously, he can be with a cat for around half an hour before he starts to sneeze. So generally, the allergy doesn't really interfere, but it's always a talking point. Right. Wow. So it takes 30 minutes to kick in. Um, well, I do, I, I do like that you've, that you've kind of used it because part, you know, part of what you do, you're very resourceful. So using a cat allergy to your advantage seems like right up your alley. Um, but, you know, this, this goes to the I, – I imagine the bulk of the rest of the stuff you do is, are dogs. And I'm a dog person. I don't dislike cats. I like cats. I, I respect their right to exist. Um, but I'm always a dog person. Where did you learn your love of pets? So when dad was 11, his mum and dad split up and it was a very sad time. But to soften the blow, my nan bought them a puppy and she was a black and white sheepdog. And they called her Maggie. Dad fell in love with her and cried all the way home in the car because he was so pleased to have such a faithful friend. 
But at the moment they started taking her for walks, he was always paranoid about losing her. So from the age of 11 to 28, when she died at 17, his bond with her and love for dogs and pets in general grew stronger each year. So Maggie was an incredibly loving pet. And if his clients' pets mean that much to them, anything we can do to reunite them is incredibly rewarding and worthwhile. That is an adorable story because I think everyone remembers for whatever reason, if you are an animal person, I think that everyone can kind of relate to their first pet. Uh, I know, I mean, I remember like a flashbulb moment the first time that I met my childhood dog named Shadow. Uh, My mom had kind of, at the school, he was kind of running around the parking lot uh, and my mom picked him up. He was a black and white Basset Pointer mix. And I remember coming in the back door and opening it and this floppy dog comes running towards me and I remember squealing, it's a puppy! And I remember giving the dog a big hug, and I loved that dog. And I don't think there's, you know, I mean, I have two dogs now. I love them. And, you know, you always, it's, it's like having kids, you know, Polly, I'm sure that you, you know this. Um, but, you know, you love all of your kids. You love all your animals. But there's something about the first dog that just is kind of magical in a way because it triggers the entire, you know, it kind of sets you on a path in your life that um is you can't really stray away from and you know for 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 tom for you it's you know it's literal like this that set you on a path that (laughs) literally affected you know your entire life uh so that's a pretty powerful pretty powerful dog yeah he was he was um unbelievable um every every um setback in life he was there, you know, so, um, yeah, memorable. I mean, that is, I, I mean, it's, I, for people who aren't pet people, I, I understand it. I mean, not everyone is into that, but there is there is something very special about um, a creature that will love you unconditionally under all situations, uh, who's always there for you. And even if you do something wrong, they don't stay mad at you for very long. Uh, they're they're just absolutely incredible. We don't deserve dogs, um, and to a lesser extent, uh, cats. But cats really don't care about us that much. And cats are completely self-sufficient. I mean, a cat is way more equipped to survive in the world than most humans, I think, <laughs> if we're being really yeah. honest. Uh, they're, yeah. they're, they're pretty dangerous. Um, you know, I, I do want to mention here... Um, that I've, you know, I mentioned before, I've done a little animal sleuthing myself. It's very amateur, yeah. Tom. I'm not, I'm not in competition with you here in the States. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not looking to usurp your authority across the world as the greatest pet detective <laughs> on planet Earth. Um, but one of, my, uh, one of my stories, and this is probably the most harrowing experience that I've ever had, is I was, you know, doing this show. This is in the early days of Fascinating Nouns. And I was interviewing um, a guy in a not in a great part of town, and and I will tell you that I have no problems with bad parts of town. Typically, um, the reason why I never drive through bad parts of town, especially in Los Angeles, is because there are always tons of stray animals, and I'm not the kind of person who can turn a blind eye from an animal running down the street. I just can't. I don't. I don't have it in me. It's gotten me into lots of problems. But that's why I, I, I will take the long route. I will take a highway, if, even if it takes me 20 minutes longer so that I don't have to drive through a neighborhood where I may see a stray dog. 
um, because yeah. it just kills my day. <laughs> but anyway, oh, so, so I'm I'm driving back from this interview. Oh no, I'm sorry. I apologize. I'm driving to the interview, which made this even more harrowing. Um, and I see this dog running in the opposite direction towards a huge intersection. So I think for a second, and I breathe. I take a big sigh, park my car, run across the street, and I realize I have absolutely no plan at all. I'm just going to chase this dog. And I realize very quickly that I'm chasing him into the intersection, which doesn't seem like a great idea. It seems kind of counterproductive to what I've just gotten myself into. So I I run down and um, it's funny because I happen to be at a stoplight. I scare the dog underneath the car. So now I'm in a bad neighborhood. Uh, I'm I'm approaching a car at a stoplight, (laughs) waving my arms frantically telling them don't drive the car because I'm about to do the smartest thing that I can think of right now, which is dive under your car and pull a dog that doesn't want to have anything to do with me who's scared out of his mind. And then I'm going to pull that dog out of the car. So please don't run over us. I'm trying to convey all of that while I'm waving my arms frantically. So I dive under the car. Uh, and I'm not a religious man by any stretch of the imagination, but I can only think that there was some guardian angel looking over me that day because the dog did not want to come out. I was able to kind of get a hold of him and pull him out of the car and kind of cradle him in my arms and pull myself out free of the vehicle before it ran over me. Um, I got a standing ovation from every homeless person that was on the side of the street. Um, They were loving it. Uh, I got out of the streets, and then I realized I now have a dog who has, you know, defecated on himself out of fear running around my car right now about to go do an interview for the show. Um, so an absolute nightmare, but I drive, so I drive to the interview and the people there, they're absolutely nice. A, a shout out, Steve Maison. Uh, he was the one on, on the show. He's a, a comedian from, I went to school with him. He's a comedian. Uh, he has a great story himself, but you know, he let me keep the dog there and I did the interview and then I brought the dog home. So now I'm getting to the point of my story. Um, I spent probably, two weeks trying to find the owner. The dog had a very strange haircut. I called all the different pet grooming places. Um, you know, I, I tried to call her on. I put posters up. And I, I don't know what it's like for you. Um, I'm going to give you a chance to answer this in a second. But when I put posters up, I got crank phone calls from people saying like, oh, I lost my dog. <laughs> and they hung up. Like, that's a hilarious joke. So I had a very difficult time with, with trying to find this dog's owner. Ultimately, what happened, make a long story short, uh, the dog had, a, had a, a chip, a microchip. But the way the Los Angeles Department of Animal Services works, they put the chip in themselves and you scan them and then a number will come up. They will not give you that information. You have to bring the dog back into the shelter. Now, I kind of refuse to put any dog through that traumatic experience. So I said, hey, look, I'll keep the dog. I'll return it. You can get in contact with the people. Just give them my number. Have them give me a call. Well, the person who was on the contact list didn't have their phone turned on, so kept going to voicemail, kept going to voicemail. So finally, the only way I cracked this case was I was able to convince someone at the animal shelter to give me the phone number of that person. I sent them a text message. They got the message because that doesn't require a voicemail being empty. Got in touch with them, and they got their dog back. Um, so, so I cracked the case, you know, uh, I'm, I'm no Tom Watkins. I don't claim to be a T Watt in any stretch of the imagination, <laughs> but I did my duty. My point of the story is not that I'm a hero, Tom. It's not that I'm a hero, which I kind of am, but that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is it was extraordinarily difficult. That was one dog, one time 
no money. How in the world have you streamlined that process and made it easier? Because you have an incredible success rate. You've got lots of people supporting this. How in the world do you streamline this process and make it repeatable and find the dogs, find the cats over and over again with a pretty high success rate? The main ways that our business reunites is, first of all, obviously, if we are in a search and we've been hired by the owner, we've got good photos of the pet. So when we find it, there's never a dispute. Um, The way that we reunite is from the professional posters. Again, whereas in your case, Dan, where you found the dog, but you didn't know the owner's identity. In our cases, the people that find the pets and rescue them only do so because they've seen a poster. Then they have the pet and they're linked to us so we can get in touch with the owner straight away. If people find the pet, they don't know who the owner is. They register the pet on our website and we can actively share the photo to the owners of the missing pets via the website and the internet, not to mention the volunteers that we have called pet patrollers. Oh, I got it. So I was working on the harder end of that scale. I was working with an unknown dog, unknown, and I was kind of solve the, trying to solve the entire equation, whereas you guys kind of come in with most of the puzzle filled in and you're really just looking to find out where the pieces go. Yeah. So based on the story I just told you, Tom, would you hire me to be on your team and how many people would I be put in charge of immediately? Do you accept payment in donuts? Uh, I, I, I don't eat donuts, but get, but I'm gathering by that my pay would be negotiable. Um, <laughs> we could figure out something. I'm sure there's some delicious delicacy uh, in, in the UK that, that you could pay me in. Uh, so, so that being said, do we have, we have a deal then, I assume? At least a handshake, a gentleman's deal at the very least? Gentleman's agreement? What about cookies? Do you want to be paid in cookies? Sure. Well, don't you guys call them biscuits there? Is that, aren't they, is that a cookie? Yeah. To, to go off of that, kind of what makes you special is, well, a lot of things I'm sure make you special. But, but, but for, this particular, for, for this particular endeavor, you kind of treat all of these missing dog cases like a missing person's case. You kind of give them that kind of professional attention uh, and expertise and something you learned um, being a police officer. What exactly are the techniques that you employ from a missing person standpoint that kind of help you zero in on at least the location of the animal, if not the animal itself? So when dad's on searches, they use maps, which they split into grids. And then each search team member is given one particular grid to search. So they all keep in touch via group chats online so that the info can be fed accurately to one another instantly. And when they need to talk, they use walkie talkies, also known as two way radios. So rather like in the police, the key is to be methodical and having a clear communication recording the sightings. That way, they would a picture of the lost pet's whereabout with help from the public as well. And, and I imagine that, you know, you talk about two-way radios and, and, and maps and grids, but one of the keys to your success, uh, if, I'm, if I'm reading this correctly, is kind of your incredible cache of, uh, of equipment. You've got some pretty incredible stuff here. I mean... Uh, you've got microchip scanners, makes sense, ladders, I imagine there's lots of cats and trees, you can save the fire department, kind of a lot of work, flashlights, a FLIR gun is an absolutely brilliant and I imagine quintessential, it's absolutely essential piece to, to what you do. Um, pet treats, dog and cat, you got to have both. I imagine that's also pretty tricky because 
Um, I just rescued a dog, gave her to my mom, and that dog is very difficult. She doesn't like treats at all. So finding a treat that she likes is proven very difficult. I imagine one of the keys to finding a dog and getting them to trust you is giving them treats. Uh, finding a dog that's picky on treats is, I bet that's kind of a, kind of a nightmare. I'm going to ask you about that in a second. Uh, but you also record your owner's voice, which is a, a brilliant innovation. Waterproof paper that you can write in the rain. I have some of these in my own shower so that none of my brilliant ideas end up going down the drain. Pet first aid kit. I mean, th- these are all, this is an incredible, incredible equipment stash. Um, are you constantly adding to this? Do you, do you have other things that you want to buy? Um, is this, uh, you know, what, what, have I missed anything that, that is essential to what you do? A feather duster. <laughs> I imagine. <laughs> do, so you sprinkle the powder on like in the, like Inspector Clouseau kind of a thing like that? <laughs> yeah. Like looking for fingerprints and paw prints. Do you do that? Yeah. A large comically sized magnifying glass that too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dad would like to get a drone so that we can survey rooftops because in London there's lots of cats that escape through the roof windows and then they walk along the rooftops. Often they find a way down, so we haven't had to do any James Bond-style rescues. (laughs) The other common situation in the countryside is that dogs get stuck down rabbit holes, so we want to buy a scope camera used by plumbers to check sewage pipes. Apart from the equipment you mentioned, really, it's that's about as comprehensive as it gets there is one thing that we'd also love to introduce and that's a fully fledged real life search dog for missing pets we're thinking about getting a dog at the moment to do this as the news is hot off the press because you guys in the book you you've used the dog before but you're saying you're going to put one on staff like you're going to he's going to be your search dog right yeah that's, I mean, that's incredible. Now, I am. Do you have to appeal to the dog as part of his canine duty to help seek out other pets, or are you just going to kind of just train the the most, the smartest one of the academy? The one with the waggiest tail is the one we're going to shoot. <laughs> I imagine that a waggly tail is arguably the greatest qualification a dog could have in this particular situation. <laughs> So now when you say search dog, if I'm understanding this correctly, what you mean is training a dog, kind of like what we have now with dogs that go and they sniff out bombs or find bodies in disaster sites. You're trying to find a dog that has a nose for other dogs and can seek them out. Uh, Now, you've used similar things in the past. Have you you had a lot of success with that? The dog that we used was owned by a team member who trained it himself, but to keep the dog that's effective and good at the work. You need to train them every day, and the cost of this prevented us from using Max the dog as much as we would have liked. But now the business is larger, we feel like we could support all the commitments needed and regularly training more easily, so watch the space. Hmm. I mean, I think that's great. You know, I'm going to sound like a wacko here with what I'm about to say, if you haven't figured that out already. But I think that, you know, we train dogs to seek out human beings, which seems... Yeah, it's almost like, I mean, obviously we're using them. We're like taking another species to help our species without really giving them anything in return. Uh, But I love this idea that dogs helping dogs. There's something kind of like we are the world about that, you know? I mean, it's it's great to to be able to use and train a dog to actually help out his own kind. Um, I like that. Are you going to train them to find cats as well? Or is that way too dangerous uh, right now as far as species relations? We would try both cats and dogs because we get more lost cats than dogs. 
the common situation is that a dog would get hit by a car and then legs it, but it's injured. So the search dog is a crucial part to finding the injured pet because they succumb the injuries before they succumb the injuries and die, sorry. Cats get stuck in sheds, so we feel like a dog would be able to detect the route taken by the cat if we are on the scene quickly. So we hope very much that both cats and dogs can be rescued quickly if we decide to go ahead and introduce a doggy detective onto the team. So, I mean, so you're not going to train cats to seek out cats, I assume. Cats are untrainable. Mm -hmm. oh, we're in agreement on that, I assume. Yeah. Yeah, okay. no. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'm just making sure. Um, but, uh, I love this idea. I mean, I think this is great. Uh, and, and what you do is you kind of, you know, from the book, uh, you, you've kind of amassed like a fleet of vehicles to store all this equipment. Obviously, the dog's going to need his own place. Uh, and Polly, I'm, I'm going to talk to you about this for a second, because one of the, the fam most famous piece of equipment, the piece of uh, one of the most famous vehicles in the fleet was an ambulance that your dad restored and he named it Polly after you. Um, how did you feel about that? Did, were, were you honored? Um, and did you have your name etched in, that you had your name etched in on the side of an ambulance? <laughs> um, I was quite young then, so I didn't really no, know about it that much. What? How could you not know you had an ambulance named after you? I, I didn't know it was named after me until, like, the book came out. What? Are you serious? Well, you just thought it was a named after a different Polly? Yeah, family kept that secret. <laughs> so, so I imagine when 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 you guys finally sold the ambulance, it had absolutely no effect on you at all. No, it was a good ambulance though. Right. We into a proper camper van. Sure. <laughs> sure. It was like, yeah. But when it when it was sold, you were like, "That's okay. That's fine." It was a shame, but it helped the business. To, to sell it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it sounded amazing, to be perfectly honest with you. Because, I mean, you guys could even throw a couple cots in the back, do some overnight stakeouts, uh, yeah. which were required for some of these things. Um, yeah, it's a pretty incredible fleet that you have. I mean, you guys still have a fleet of, I mean, now that the business is doing um, doing very well, I imagine you, you have a fleet of cars still. Do you have a new ambulance, or, or is it irreplaceable? We are currently in the process of choosing a new instant control unit which will be a large van with a mobile mobile office and a control room, storage for all of this, the search equipment, and maybe some bunk beds too so that we could stay overnight. But it'll be much newer than Polly the Ambulance and be the only one of its kind in Europe, hopefully. So we can coordinate searches using onboard computer screens, Google Earth and social media output. This can be done from inside the van. We are going to save up the money to have media screens on the sides of the vehicle showing pictures of the missing pets on a live stream. <laughs> wow. So, I mean, essentially, you've, I mean, that's pretty high tech. I mean, that's pretty incredible. So, essentially, what you've done is you've turned pet search into like an event almost, right? I mean, like, I guess that's a way to get people involved. I mean, you, you, it's like this whole event that's kind of coming to the town and everyone wants to kind of be a part of. You know, it's kind of like when, when someone's filming in a neighborhood, everyone wants to kind of be in, involved with the movie. You know, is that, is that kind of the approach that you're doing? Definitely. We find if we can get the community to engage with us and pay attention, that's crucial. The public often don't know Dad's service exists, so the interest in what they are doing is a huge advantage. 
when it comes to raising awareness for the pet. I mean, because what, what's kind of cool about the ambulance is, I mean, it was almost like kind of in Ghostbusters when they rebuild Ecto-1. They kind of, you know, they find this junked out, like, former hearse and they turn it into this spectacle that kind of blazes down the street with that, you know, with, with that that siren whine that, that's so distinct. Uh, so I imagine you guys, I mean, because one of the things that's kind of brilliant about what you do is you've, you kind of, in a sense, and maybe I'm wrong here, so I apologize, you know, <laughs> I'm speaking out of turn, but in some ways you kind of embrace the, the perceived absurdity of what you do and, and you kind of are able to market it in a way that makes people intrigued by the uniqueness of not only the service, but, um, but just how seriously you take everything, which is, you know, a fundamental part of what you do. Uh, I really, I really love that ab- about kind of how this, at least how it's portrayed in the book. I mean, I just love that aspect. I mean, you really, really have kind of mastered marketing, uh, if, if I could say. And so turning into a mobile spectacle, um, I think is a great way to get people to, to find all these pets. Uh, and plus, I imagine you get a lot of media attention as well. Now, Polly, I'm, I'm coming to another question here. Uh, now, you've read the, Polly, you've read the book, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> I've read parts of it. Parts of it? Not the whole thing? Yeah. Not the whole thing. Wow. Um, Tom, are you okay with that? Or is, is Polly still grounded until she finishes the book? Or how does, how, how, how do you, how do you handle that in your household? Doing a page a day. A page a day. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. I mean, that's, you know, it'll just take you about a year to read the book. Um, there, there's one story in the book that, I mean, it kind of floored me because it involves an animal I've never heard of before. Uh, and that's a Deku. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Uh, so, number one, they're absolutely adorable. Um, I don't. I don't think these are particularly popular in the states. I've never heard of one. Um, not that I'm, you know, not, not that I'm a pet connoisseur or anything, but I've never heard of them before. Uh, what, what, what I love about this story. Have you read this story, Polly? Because there's spoilers. Uh, yeah. if, if, okay. I know you. I know you lived it, but you lived the child side of it. I don't know if you knew the adult side of it. Um, so I'm going to, I'm just going to, just for brevity's sake, I'm going to kind of f- tell the story very quickly. Um, so basically someone brought to you a lost Daegu. I imagine that you guys get a lot of lost pets. We'll talk about weird pets in a second. Um, but if someone brought a lost Daegu, you guys couldn't find the owner. So you kept it. I believe it was specifically f- for you, Polly, right? The, um, yeah. okay. Uh, so you thought, Hey, it may get lonely. Let's get another one. So you got to, you wanted yeah. to make sure, you know, that you got two girls or two boys. Let's just keep it like, uh, you know, let's keep it like, a, a, an all girls floor an all boys floor so that we don't have any kind of tomfoolery. Um, so you, you went out, you got another one. Turns out someone was wrong. And within pretty short order, you had nine, <laughs> nine day. Yeah. I had uh, nine days. You had an obstacle course. I mean, it sounds like they had a pretty cool life until the incident. I'm going to refer to it as the incident because that's what it seems like in the book um, where they essentially all got out um, because you have an Uncle Harry. Is that right? Is it Uncle Harry who screwed this thing up? Yeah. It was whilst we were on holiday. (laughs) You guys were on on vacation? Yeah. Yeah. so now, now let me ask you: Is is Harry kind of is he kind of a goofball? Is he unreliable in general? 
pretty much. <laughs> so this was this had a very like uh, almost like a home alone type of feel. Like th- this felt like kind of like a a, com- a comedy gone wrong. And so these things get out. Um, so Tom, you and you and Harry have to have to gather up all these degus. Um, what in the world was that process like, and how long did that take? Um, it was like being in a pinball machine with the degus running everywhere. And the more we tried to catch them, the quicker they ran. It was like a candy's camera situation. Candy camera, I probably. Think, Although yeah. candy's I, camera sounds delicious. <laughs> <laughs> I think if we would have filmed it, it would have gone viral. And it took around two hours to catch the last little bugger. Wow. That's insane. Now, now, Polly, did you know all this was going on? Or was your dad pretty pretty clever in keeping this from you? Um, I didn't know until the end of the day. Oh, that's it. So you just so he basically yeah. kept it like for from you from twenty four hours. Yeah, and he used it as a little blackmail because I was, I was acting up a bit, and he was like, "We do realize that all the degus escaped." I was like, "Oh God, that will shut me up." <laughs> wow. So you weren't. So so this wasn't like a big reveal in the book that kind of tore the family apart. This was just you already knew this information. Yeah, I did already know it by then. Okay. All right. Um, now, now, Polly, do you have, do you love pets as well? Or has your dad's obsession kind of pushed you in the other direction and you're pretty anti-pet? Oh, no, I love pets. Yeah. Are you going to jump yeah. into the family business? Um, I don't think I will, but I've done bits in the business, but I don't think I'll carry on. But you're not going to be like a full-fledged member of the team? No. When did you first get involved with the business? Because I think you're you're because you're still in school now. Um, but w- when did you first kind of start getting active? When I was like seven, I used to help the printers and leave <laughs> yeah. Did you help design them or just print them out? <laughs> uh, print them out and then cut them up and stuff like that. Sure, sure. Um, perfect job for a seven-year-old. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah. So that's 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 pretty fun. I mean, I imagine it's got to be kind of cool for you, especially if you love pets, to watch your dad kind of reunite so many different people across the entire UK. Yeah. Um. Is so is it as as being a hero kind of gone to his head, or is he pretty? Does he stay pretty grounded? No, oh, he's bonkers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I imagine so. It's kind of hard, you know, when when you're the greatest when the when you're the world's greatest pet detective. I mean, it's kind of weird because London has spawned two of the greatest detectives in in history. One, Sherlock Holmes. Um, two, Tom Watkins, the greatest pet detective ever known. Uh, I mean, it's it's pretty incredible. I don't know why do you think the UK has such a corner on uh, great detectives? Either one of you can answer that. That's uh, like a lot of brilliant people that have come out of the UK over the years. He never gives up. He's a bit eccentric, but he's passionate and proud to have achieved so much. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty incredible. I mean, because you kind of go to extreme lengths. You know, I mean, you've did a, a, a reenactment of a dog theft um, to kind of to, to put it up to get media attention. Um, you're really good at social media virility. You even flew a stunt plane. Um, and I love that story because it's so much more complicated because you actually had a battle with um, another TV program that was shooting on the airfield. And uh, clearly they're not they're, they weren't uh, fans of, of pet detectives because they wouldn't even let you film the banner coming in, which is totally insane. Um, it's pretty cr- incredible stuff. I do want to mention a couple of words in closing here. Uh, you don't have to define them, but for those of you listening in the States, 
just make sure that you're aware of these words because um, otherwise the, the book will be borderline unreadable. Uh, chin wag, <laughs> keen as mustard, uh, grassing him up, hang fire a minute, moggy, knackered, blower, telling a porky, natter, chuffed, a jumper, and done a bunk. Those are pro- that's probably the greatest assortment of, <laughs> of UK-specific words that I've ever heard of. They're very, very British. So make sure you're caught up on all of those. Um, I mean, this is it's incredible what you do, Tom. How can people get in touch with you? I know you guys, obviously, you're on social media. Um, how, what is your website, and, and how can people kind of get in touch with you if they want to hire you for their services? And i got to tell you, if you have a lost pet, you're an absolute fool um, not to use their services. How do we get in touch with you? People can visit missingpetsearchteam.com. And it's free to register any lost or found pets. The service will match up the lost and found. But if you'd like to go one step further and hire a team, who are you going to call? Tom Watkins. <laughs> <laughs> that just rolls right off the tongue, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> I know, right? That's, that's absolutely brilliant. I've, I don't even know where you came up with that. And I feel like you came up with that on the spot. Um, now, I want to ask you one other question before I let you go. Are you looking to franchise in the States? Because if you are, uh, producer Sarah, I think, would be very interested in having her own pet detective agency. I don't know if I could handle it, so I don't know that I can be a franchisee as well. But but if people are looking to do that, is, is it something you're, you're looking into to expand? Quite possibly. They should send a message to Dad via the website. Okay. So you are looking to franchise, you're looking to recolonize the United States. I think there's probably an opening for that. I don't know that there are any major pet search companies here in the United States. I think this that could be a huge franchising opportunity. I think you should seriously look into that. So anyone who's looking to be a franchisee, um, we'll have the, the all the information on the website. This is incredible stuff. I, I love what you do, Tom. I think you've built an incredible organization here, and uh, you know it's fun. It's important. And and I think you've really kind of mastered the art of kind of accidentally mastered the art of business growth. Um, I mean, it's incredible stuff. And, and I really thank both of you, uh, Polly, you as well, um, for being so influential to your dad and for helping us with the translation here. I want to thank both of you for being on the show today. Thank you for having us. Well, thank you, guys. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Go to FascinatingNouns.com to learn more about this show and to follow the show on social media. You can find links to the show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages all at the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. You can listen to past episodes, learn more about guests, subscribe to the newsletter where you learn about this show, other shows, more in-depth behind the scenes, upcoming shows. And if you like the show, you're going to love my latest podcast, Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, Gear-Based Technologies, which you can find at fgbt.com. That's fgbt.com. One more time, fgbt.com. And I and a team of experts talk about pop culture technology and how to make it in real life. Just had an episode on the Death Star from Star Wars. We did the obscure Hoffman glasses from They Live, where you can see aliens among us. We did Everlasting Gobstopper from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, all kinds of stuff stuff fgbt.com and if you like those two shows you're gonna like everything that i do go to danieljglenn.com to find out more thank you for listening
End of transmission.